0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nothafanchel. The opioid epidemic continues within the COVID-19 pandemic. Connecticut reported a 14% increase in opioid overdose deaths when compared to last year. Nationally, overdose deaths increased by double that. And to get an idea of the sheer number of lives lost, the CDC says half a million people have died from opioid overdoses from 2009 to 2019. Now, pharmaceutical company Purdue Pharma, based in Stanford, has been at the center of the opioid crisis. The company manufactured the painkiller OxyContin, aggressively marketed it, minimizing its addictiveness, and leading to thousands of lawsuits. Now a federal judge has overturned a $4.5 billion settlement between the drug maker and state, local, and tribal governments, saying the agreement in bankruptcy court was wrong to release the billionaire Sackler family and the company's owners from civil lawsuits. Today, where we live, what happens now? And how is Purdue Pharma continuing to profit? And later, how do we prevent a similar crisis in corporate governance? You can join us, 888 720 9677. That's 888 720 WMPR. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. First joining us on Zoom is William Tong, Connecticut's Attorney General. Welcome back to the show.
3: Happy holidays
0: so your reaction uh, to uh, this settlement being overturned Uh, we know connecticut and other states including the district of columbia appealed that settlement Uh, tell us why
3: yeah it was just nine of us eight states and the district and the department of justice this is seismic this is a huge victory for victims and their families and and survivors and a huge victory for justice and accountability you know at the end of the day Um, The Sacklers are going to pay, under this proposed bankruptcy plan, less than 5% on their money. And as far as I can tell, no Sackler is going to have to sell a boat or a car or a piece of art or a piece of jewelry. And that's just wrong. I pay more than 5% on my car loan, and we need to hold the Sacklers accountable. We need to bring them to justice and to make them pay for all the damage and destruction they've wrought on our state and across the country.
0: People point also to the fact that this Purdue settlement money would have helped fund treatment for opioid use disorder. And some say the sooner the funding gets here, the better. So what's your response to that?
3: Well, two things. Number one, we do need resources for treatment and prevention, and we're gonna get that. I brokered a $26 billion settlement along with my fellow AGs with the three major drug distributors uh, in Johnson & Johnson, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal McKesson, and Johnson & Johnson. That is the second largest cash settlement in history, second only to the tobacco case, and that will bring more than $300 million to Connecticut, and that money will start to flow next year. But Lucy, this isn't just about the money. My job is not just to sue companies and bring money into Connecticut. My job is to pursue justice. And this is a law enforcement action. Connecticut is holding the Sacklers accountable for the more than 1,300 families, close to 1,400 families that this holiday season will have an empty chair at the dining room table or in the living room, and the more than $10 billion that uh, the Sacklers and Purdue have done to Connecticut's economy every single year. So it's not just about the money. It's about justice. It's about the two moms I had last Thursday in my office right before this decision was announced. Two moms who, between them, have lost three sons, and no amount of money is going to bring them back. Hmm.
0: You mentioned uh, that $26 billion settlement that you helped broker, um, and the U.S. Senator Chris Murphy and others encouraging Connecticut towns and cities to join in this national opioid settlement. I think there's a January 2nd deadline uh, to participate. Uh, You mentioned the lives lost and uh, the financial costs. to uh, fight uh, this crisis but I'm wondering if you can talk more about when we think about uh, the billions that this settlement uh, would have provided but when you, uh, I guess, quantify the, the cost of care, uh, the cost for counseling, uh, the cost on families who are still struggling with a loved one that's dealing with opioid uh, abuse disorder. If you could talk more about uh, the personal uh, sacrifice that, that p- families have been dealing with.
3: Well, two, two things that really, um, that really strike me as pivotal In these cases, and as we try to confront what I believe is the worst public health crisis in America, COVID notwithstanding. Number one, the true toll, the true amount of damage, the cost of this is unknowable. Um, You'd be hard pressed to find anybody in this state who hasn't been touched in some way by this crisis. You'd be hard pressed to find anybody who hasn't lost somebody close to them um, because it really touches everybody in every community. The second thing is I have spent a lot of time with victims, survivors, and their families. And I hear extraordinary stories of triumph of people who are prescribed way too much medication when they were kids, when they were teenagers for an accident or an injury. And then they fall into addiction and they go to hell and back and they're in recovery and they're doing great. Um, And they've overcome tremendous challenges. But that As I've talked to so many victims and people in recovery, you also understand that this is a lifetime walk that we need to take with them, a lifetime challenge, a lifetime burden and struggle, and not everybody's going to make it. And that's that's the real tragedy here is that people will do extraordinarily well, and still they won't make it. Still they will fall victim to addiction and to this crisis that was started in large part by a family driven by greed here in our own home state of Connecticut. And people ask me, other AGs, people in working in this crisis, working in these cases, you know, you're the home state attorney general, William. What does that mean to you? And what I say is, it means I have a special obligation to be aggressive and hold them accountable
0: hearing William Tong, Connecticut's Attorney General here on Where We Live as we talk about Purdue Pharma. Uh, You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're familiar with all of the claims from uh, this drug maker, Attorney General Tong, uh, Purdue Pharma claiming only 4% of the opioid market was made up of Oxycontin at its peak. And so can you talk about that and the ripple effect because we know that when we think about uh, opioid uh, use disorder and people that are dying from accidental overdoses, Uh, the the ripple effect when we think about fentanyl and heroin.
3: Yeah, here's what we know. We know that thousands of people are dying. We know that the Sacklers aggressively, deceptively marketed a drug, fraudulently marketed marketed a drug uh, to people in Connecticut and across the country. They, They were pill pushers, drug pushers, and they didn't care what happened to people. They... Willfully denied um, the evidence about addiction and about the highly addictive nature of their product. They blamed victims. They said the reason why people were addicted was because they had a pseudo addiction, and and, and under their theory that if they just got more drugs, um, that they wouldn't feel the need or the craving. So um, the Sacklers claimed that the real problem was that people weren't getting enough medicine. And, and that just sounds obviously so wrong and sick to people um, when we hear the Sacklers make these sorts of claims about victims and, and blaming people who have fallen into addiction. We know that in 2007, the Sacklers pled guilty, well, not the Sacklers, uh, unfortunately, but Purdue Pharma and three senior executives pled guilty to federal criminal charges. And it was at that point, 2007 that the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma they had the opportunity to acknowledge that they helped to start this fire and and they could help the states and local communities and healthcare providers and doctors help to put this out. But instead, they poured gasoline on it. And now this fire rages across Connecticut and across country.
0: So what more can you do as a Connecticut Attorney General? You don't have the authority to pursue criminal charges against the Sacklers, but in terms of working with others who do have that power, Attorney General Tong.
3: Yeah, there is tremendous power in working with my fellow attorneys general across the country. There isn't a state or an attorney general who isn't actively engaged in this work. It's a very small group of us, and I helped to lead the nine of us that said, no, the settlement proposed by the Sacklers is not good enough. The Purdue Farm of Bankruptcy doesn't cut it. They need to be held accountable. And we stepped out and appealed the bankruptcy judge's decision giving the Sacklers a lifetime of immunity. We won. That was a big win, but there's still much more fight to be had in this case. We expect Purdue and the Sacklers to appeal. Uh, We will meet them in the Court of Appeal in the Second Circuit, United States Court of Appeals, and I'm confident we will beat them there too. And if we have to, we will go to the U.S. Supreme Court to hold them accountable. I'm going to keep fighting. And it's not just on Purdue. It's not just on the Sacklers. It's not just on the distributors and Johnson & Johnson. There's an addiction industry out there that makes money off of people's misery. And I'm going to continue to pursue them, to hold them accountable. I expect that for as long as I'm attorney general, and as long as the people of this state will honor me with this responsibility, I will be doing this work and going after people responsible for this crisis.
0: That's Connecticut Attorney General William Tong here on Where We Live. We wanted to get more context on the settlement that was overturned. Uh, Joining us now on Zoom is Josh Silverstein, professor of law at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. We just heard Attorney General Tong say Purdue Purdue Pharma is expected to appeal. And so can you talk about this legal process? Uh, How long could it last before maybe another
2: agreement is reached? It's a good question. Bankruptcy works a little bit differently than a, a regular lawsuit. Normally, you've got three levels in a lawsuit. There's the trial court. There's the appellate court. And then you can appeal to the Supreme Court those Supreme Courts regularly have discretion whether to take the case. In bankruptcy, there's a fourth level. So you start at the bankruptcy court, then you generally go to the trial court, then the appellate court, and then possibly the Supreme Court. So we've only finished the second level. Next, as Attorney General Tong explained, there'll be an appeal to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. That could take a year or more. And then the Supreme Court take this case, while the Supreme Court gets to choose which cases it's going to hear, this would be a really good vehicle to finally address the power of bankruptcy courts to grant the type of immunity the sacklers have received, because the courts disagree about that. So I wouldn't be surprised if this lasted a couple of more years and we ended up before the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: When we talk about uh, you know this federal judge finding the bankruptcy court doesn't have the authority to approve legal immunity for people
2: who did not declare bankruptcy, break that down for us. Normally, when a party declares bankruptcy, they're entitled to what's called a discharge. And what the discharge does is eliminate all of the liability that the debtor, the bankrupt person, had prior to declaring bankruptcy with a few exceptions that aren't really relevant right now for our purposes in this case. But the person who gets that discharge is only the person that declares bankruptcy. It could be an individual, it could be a business, but it's the party that declares bankruptcy that gets that discharge. Well, about 35 years ago, courts started granting what is called a non-debtor release. To parties that are related to the debtor. The classic example being shareholders of a company that declares bankruptcy. We're getting these non debtor releases. And a non debtor release is similar to a discharge in that it's an elimination of liability, but it goes to the non debtor, the party related to the debtor, like a shareholder or a, a director or officer. And so, that party gets an elimination of some of their liability. It's generally not comprehensive. The discharge eliminates everything. Most non-debtor releases are only extinguishing specific claims, like claims against the director or officer related to the bankrupt debtor. And courts have started de- granting these non-debtor releases, but there's a split over whether that type of relief mm. is allowed. No question a debtor can get a discharge, but can a non-debtor get the equivalent of a partial discharge, eliminating some of its liability? That's where the courts have been in disagreement for over 30 years.
0: Meanwhile, Josh, uh, there's this proposed Sackler Act in Congress that would prevent protections for owners in similar situations. Can you tell
2: us more about that? Sure. And in the interest of disclosure, I've helped with the drafting of that statute. The Sackler Act would essentially ban non-debtor releases and it would also ban some other types of orders that bankruptcy courts have issued over the last 30 years that are not as extensive as non-debtor releases, but grant similar types of relief. And so basically the Sackler Act would simply ban non-debtor releases. And since the bankruptcy code is a statute, it can be amended like any other statute, and if the Sacra Act passes, that would moot the issue in terms of the authority of bankruptcy courts to grant non-debtor releases. They would be barred going forward. But it probably wouldn't impact the SACRA case because generally statutes only apply moving forward. They don't apply backward looking, but retroactively. So there's a good chance that even if the SACRA Act passes, It won't impact the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy and any of the non-debtor releases in that case.
0: You're hearing Josh Silverstein here on Where We Live, professor of law at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Josh, thank you for that context. We appreciate your perspective.
2: My pleasure, thanks for having me.
0: And also here with us with Connecticut Attorney General William Tong. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, coming up after the break, we're going to talk about how Purdue Pharma is still benefiting from opioid drugs like OxyContin. We talk about that coming up, and you can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888 720 wmpr or share a comment or question on Facebook, or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. <music> This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're focused on Stanford-based Purdue Pharma. It also has a subsidiary based in the UK, drug maker Mundi Pharma International. Mundi Pharma has a presence in 120 countries. That's according to Reuters. It offers drugs for pain management and other diseases. And the company's China unit is now up for sale and could earn the Sackler family more than $1 billion. Painkiller OxyContin is one of Mundi Pharma's core products in China. A Mundi Pharma spokesperson to declined to provide sales and profit data for OxyContin. In a statement to where we live, Jan Milton Edwards says, we provide Nixoid at cost and do not make any profit from it. Nixoid is a nasal spray that contains naloxone for emergency treatment to reverse opioid overdose. Now, the Sacklers will own the subsidiary until the restructuring and settlement plan of Purdue Pharma is effective. And once that settlement is in place, Milton Edwards went on to say, our shareholders intend to sell Mundi Pharma within seven years. But we just heard the bankruptcy settlement stalled. So how much longer will it take to sell Mundy Pharma? Joining us now is Stephen Woods. He's an acute care nurse practitioner in Boston, a visiting researcher at Harvard Law School. And he's here to talk more about the Sackler's ongoing sales of opioids in overseas markets. Steve Woods, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you, Lisa, for having me. It's a pleasure to be on today.
0: Now, we didn't talk, we're we talking about OxyContin and the Sacklers, but before that, they sold a pill dubbed Mother's Little Helper. Uh, tell us about that.
4: Yeah, so, you know, the Sackler family, you know, uh, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond Sackler, they were, um, you know, three Jewish immigrants. They came from Poland. They were fairly, you know, came from a fairly poor family. All of them went to medical school. Um, all of them went, um, onto, uh, psychiatry, uh, but you know, they and they did do some, some wonderful things, um, during their time as practitioners, but Arthur, you know, really, um, you know, kind of left, um, you know, pra- as a practitioner and started focusing more on, on advertising. And he was really the first to come up with direct advertising to physicians, And one of the first drugs that, you know, he was involved with was uh, a drug called diazepam or Valium. Uh, And this drug was marketed directly um, to both providers, but also to housewives who um, were feeling stressors of, uh, you know, being uh, home, uh, having, you know, many responsibilities as a housewife. And so Valium was kind of that, quote unquote, glass of Chardonnay at the end of the day. Um, And, you know, sales of that drug rocketed because of his uh, involvement. Um, And he took, you know, basically that methodology, which is, you know, really focusing on both provider and consumer and carried that over uh, to OxyContin, as we know.
0: Mm. When we talk about what... Purdue Pharma knew about Oxycontin being highly addictive and minimizing that risk uh, when it was aggressively marketed. Uh, Also, Purdue and Mundy Pharma executives were alerted to concerns surrounding addiction as far back as 1996. Uh, There were minutes from a meeting uh, held in Switzerland in May 6th, uh, Mundy Pharma executives met with a leading Swiss physician. Uh, This Dr. Dayer is quoted as saying, Oxycontin for back pain is not regarded as suitable indication. For opioids in europe and this indication is accompanied by a psychological factor which holds a risk for addiction if opioids are used for treatment your response to that steve
4: well we've long known opioids are addictive and you know oxycontin is is basically um, oxycodone which is an opiate that has been around for dec- Um and it's just an extended relief formulation it's it's just the packing So there's no difference in you know, the degree of, of addiction that we're going to see. I think you know they didn't have any data to support this. Um, they simply theorized uh, that you know, an extended release might um, reduce the degree by which people become addicted. But we've known for centuries that opioids are an addictive agent um, and that hasn't changed. And Oxycontin, you know, the the increasing dosages that were associated with this, you know, um, delayed release really, you know, kind of um, negated any any idea that this would be less addictive. I, I don't think that, you know, we should be fooled um, that they, you know, they didn't think this was going to be an addictive agent. We've known, as I mentioned, for centuries that's the case. Um, and if they felt that way, um, then they should have pursued, you know, academic research to demonstrate that, and they didn't. Instead, they um, decided to uh, forego that and just make these claims um, and you know, heavily marketed that drug uh, with that claim.
0: Again, you're hearing Steve Wood here on Where We Live, a bioethicist and visiting researcher at the Harvard Law School. Uh, We read a statement from Mundi Pharma about uh, the company selling Nixoid, if I'm saying that correct, which contains naloxone, an emergency drug to reverse overdosing. Some would argue, you know, why is this company allowed to sell this drug? Uh, And really, what can be done about it, Steve?
4: Yeah, so this, you know, um, actually, Purdue actually attempted this uh, here in the United States as well. They had something called Project Tango, uh, and their idea was to be, you know, an end-to-end, you know, for the consumer. So they would sell the OxyContin and other pain medications, and then on the back end, you know, they'd be offering buprenorphine and naloxone and other agents uh, to manage, you know, both treatment and um, overdose. Uh, In China... Um, you know, and what Monday Pharma is doing is that you know this Nixoid. This is not a novel drug. This is naloxone, and naloxone, or you know, the brand name Narcan, has been. Uh, it was patented in 1961. It was always very cheap. Uh, it's always been used in the setting of o- opioid overdose. What these companies are doing are claiming that the delivery system, which is a nasal spray, is something novel. And so initially they were charging you know, in well in excess of what it costs to manufacture that drug, which is just pennies. Now they're offering it at cost um, because they're, you know, they're they're saying that they're doing this, you know, uh, in in response to the opioid overdose, uh, uh, opioid epidemic. But in reality, you know, they they're still profiting from their Oxycontin sales. So this is just You know a a, a really not you know what they're stating which is Mm -hmm. that they're really you know putting some effort and putting some interest in preventing um the you know uh, preventing overdose Uh, they're still heavily marketing oxycontin in china um this is just you know kind of a safety net and offering it at cost really doesn't harm them in any way um and in fact they probably are still profiting in some degree especially where they you know have a quote-unquote novel nasal spray which I'm sure all of us, you know, who live in this area have a nasal spray at home. There's nothing novel about that. It's just the, you know, it's the same delivery system that has been used for decades. Uh, so I think that if they truly, if Mundy Pharma and Purdue truly wanted to end this epidemic, um, the solution is not a treatment for overdose, mm-hmm. right? That is, that means that you're well beyond, you know, uh, um, you know, addiction, uh, the treat the treatment for this would be stopping sales of this drug, stopping the aggressive marketing of this drug, and then really investing in research on what is effective treatment for opioid use disorder.
0: When you talk about stopping um, the, the the sale of this drug, you know I remember when we started covering uh, this uh, crisis, you know, several years back, getting an email from a woman who is dealing with pain, chronic pain every day. I'm not sure what her condition was, uh, but feeling that, you know, that her ability to um, get this painkiller has become harder and, you know, this idea that people that are really living with pain, um, that they do need suitable treatment. And so, you know, how do we make sure that we don't forget about uh, those people uh, in this, again, um, very important uh, conversation about making sure that we know something is addictive to help people but to not lead them on this path that can lead to opioid use disorder, Steve?
4: You no, know, that is absolutely true. And I have a strong interest, actually, in that patient population, um, especially the palliative care patients who really do require opioids. Opioids are the best analgesic we have. They're the best pain reliever we have. Um, however, the indications for these drugs has really become, you know, overblown. Um, and this all started with, you know, the fifth vital sign of pain. And so that anyone who had any amount of pain was going to receive an opioid And what we found is that that indication is overblown and that, you know, there are other safer alternatives for people who have um, pain that doesn't necessarily require opioid analgesia. Uh, And so if we can refocus on the conditions that we consider opioid analgesia, I think that will be of benefit to those patients who are having difficulty finding them. We certainly should be making sure that patients with you know, cancer pain and patients that need palliative care, that they're the ones that are getting the opioids. Um, we found that there's no indication, you know, for these drugs for um, chronic back pain, uh, for, you know, uh, other chronic conditions that respond better to acetaminophen, to other NSAIDs, uh, and that don't really require opioids. If we refocus as a, you know, medical community on, identify that patient population that will be best served with opioids, then I think we, you know, can, can solve that issue.
0: You can join our conversation here on Where We Live 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, earlier in the show, we were talking about this delay in settlement money to fund the treatment of opioid use disorder. I'm wondering if you can talk about uh, when we think about the cost, as uh, Attorney General Tong mentioned, it's hard to quantify, right? When we think about not just the financial cost of this crisis, but the the toll it has taken on families and families that are still struggling um, and the fact that their loved ones may not be getting the proper treatment or or care or there's waiting lists. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that and what this delay in funding could mean.
4: Sure. So the problem I have is that we really don't know what effective treatment for opioid use disorder is. Mm -hmm. So while this money is becoming available, um, the current treatments that we have simply aren't working very well. Uh, you know, I've worked in both the emergency department setting, and I've worked in the intensive care unit, and I've spoken to many, many, you know, um, users of opioids. Um, there's always underlying trauma. There's always underlying mental illness. Um, but oftentimes, those two, dis- those disorders—opioid use disorder and mental illness—are treated separately, uh, and so we we aren't really effectively managing opioid use disorder, and so. Granted there are, are going to be millions of dollars you know infused into treatment programs, but we don't yet know what treatment programs work. And the ones that we do have some idea uh, as being effective, and that's actually um, you know drug replacement therapy using either methadone or um, you know uh, suboxone, uh, those are very highly restricted. You need a special license to prescribe them. If you're on methadone, you need to show up at a clinic every day. Um, we don't treat any other disease this way. If you have diabetes, you don't have to show up at a clinic every day to get your insulin. Um, you know, you don't. If you have other diseases, uh, you can, you know, be prescribed these medications at home. And so, it, as as I'm encouraged by the millions of dollars that are going to be coming into the system to help with opioid use disorder, but we really need to get a good grasp on what will work, and we don't, don't have good data on that yet. And so, I worry that these millions of dollars are going to come in. They're going to be infused into programs that aren't working, like the three or four-day detoxes, abstinence programs, um, you know, programs that don't deal with both disorders, be you know, that being mental health and substance use, and that we're going to waste these funds, and that we're going to misappropriate these this funding, and we're going to be you know right where we're at. We've already seen you know, despite years of of effort, um, the numbers have gone up. Um, during you know, this um, past year, the numbers went from 80,000 to 100,000 uh, know, opioid-related deaths. And so what we're doing isn't working. Um, money can fix that, but only if we spend the money the right way.
0: These are all important points, Steve, that you mentioned, you know, getting back to suboxone and methadone, the fact that they have to go um, to particular uh, clinics uh, to receive this treatment. Why is that? still in 2021? Why has there not been changes to how there's um, uh, access to these particular treatments?
4: Well, the, that comes down to the concern that we're just putting more opioid into the market. And so, you know, I, I did a lot of research on why do you need a special license to prescribe, you know, Suboxone? I can prescribe opioids having only, you know, an hour or two of education on on those drugs uh, in my in my training. Yet if I wanted to prescribe Suboxone, um, I had to take a 24-hour course to do that. And so I think you know, the, I, what I found uh, digging through many, many documents was that Congress was afraid that this would be yet another opioid pumped into the system that would you know, uh, create, uh, you know, possibly create some harm. And so they felt that by restricting that, uh, they would have at least a grapple on you know, access to this drug. What that's not the case, right? So we know that people um, will take buprenorphine, which is the act, active kind of agonist antagonist, um, uh, you know, opioid in Suboxone, and they will uh, use that as a as a substitute for opioids. They're selling that as a substitute for opioids. Um, so you know, what we're doing isn't particularly working. Um, If it became more accessible and if it became, you know, more uh, um, acceptable as a drug, I think then those problems would would go away. And the other piece of that puzzle is, well, then why, if we were concerned about, you know, this particular drug, these, you know, drug replacement therapies that we have real good data as being effective for, you know, helping people through um, addiction, why weren't we more restrictive with OxyContin or oxycodone or dilotid or any of these other drugs? Um, all the things that we've done to try to make it more restrictive have failed, um, and that includes um, you know prescription monitoring programs and you know campaigns about you know reducing um, prescription. It just isn't working, and so I think that you know if we can make this drug more available, more accessible, and more acceptable as as a treatment as a therapy then I think, you know, it's, it will be safer all around, uh, and and we'll make some headway into treating addiction. Mm
0: -hmm. One more for you when you say making this treatment more acceptable. Is there stigma that still surrounds suboxone and methadone?
4: Yeah, so there's stigma, um, not only with providers. So I think a lot of providers, because of the restrictiveness of this medication, so because you have to take this extra course, because there, you know, needs to be Certain you know elements in place before you prescribe it. There's some stigma among providers; they're not feeling comfortable with its use because of all the um, you know the restrictions around it. When sim- when it's actually a very simple drug to administer, very safe and effective. And there's also stigma amongst you know people with opioid use disorder. So we've you know we've made abstinence the goal um, you know for everybody, but that's not always going to work. And that's not always the best approach. And so, until we say, you know, absence, abstinence doesn't need to be the goal for everybody. That this drug replacement therapy is safe. It doesn't make you any worse of a person if you require this drug to manage your symptoms. And in fact, it's going to make you a better person uh, because you're going to be on a you know prescribed um, uh, program that's monitored by either you know a physician, a PA, or an NP. And so I think that stigma has been created by us as providers because of the restrictions, but also because of our, you know, uh, dic- uh, that we're dictating that, you know, abstinence is really the only key when we know that, you know, that isn't going to work. This is a, a, a chronic and relapsing disease with a large, you know, percentage of recidivism. And so we know these therapies are effective, that many people can be on them for long periods of time if not their entire life. Um, And it's effective. And so we need to really kind of shift the paradigm and ensure that people realize this is a safe drug. It's effective. If you have to be on it for your life, that's okay. Um, It's going to be the treatment that keeps you, you know, um, from relapsing into using, you know, fentanyl or heroin or other drugs.
0: You're hearing Steve Wood here on Where We Live, bioethicist and acute care nurse practitioner and a visiting researcher at Harvard Law School. He'll stay with us after the break. We're going to talk about corporate governance, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopenthal. Now, where we live producer Abby Levine looked into payments made by Purdue Pharma to physicians and teaching hospitals in Connecticut of $60 million between 2014 and 2020. Fewer physicians accepting Purdue money in recent years, that's according to the Open Payments database by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Purdue dollars also went into hedge funds. Sun River Management in Stanford redeemed investments by a private Sackler investment firm last year, partly to disassociate itself from the family. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. And amid the falling out, a website called Judge for Yourselves attempts to absolve the Sacklers from the opioid crisis. A spokesperson for that website did not respond to our request for comment. Now, what role does corporate governance and ethics play in the pharma industry? Joining us now on Zoom is Alexa Dietrich, Research Associate Professor at Wagner College in the Department of Culture and Economy. Alexa, welcome to the show.
1: It's good
0: to be here. And just to be clear, Wagner did not receive funding from Purdue. Uh, Alexa, we wanted to play a clip uh, from uh, a man profiled in a Netflix four-part docu-series titled The Pharmacist. Uh, This was featuring a real-life pharmacist, Dan Schneider. Uh, He's from a small town in Louisiana. His 22, 22-year-old son was shot dead while attempting to buy crack cocaine in New Orleans. That grief led Schneider to drug dealers, a pill mill doctor, and Purdue Pharma, all in an effort to help save lives. Schneider, Schneider, rather, spoke with Where We Live, senior producer Sujata Srinivasan, recalling his efforts to convince Purdue to reduce the addictive effects of
5: OxyContin. Let's just take a listen to this. Another company had actually a headache drug that they had an abuse potential with. And when they found out, they added Naloxone or NX to the the drug. The drug name was Tarwin, and they made it Tarwin NX. It reduced the abuse potential quite a bit. Of course, their sales went down. But what I did was I told the OxyContin manufacturer, which was a female uh, vice president with Purdue, I said, y'all could add NX to OxyContin. You could call it OxyContin NX. And then if it was chewed or injected, the drug would be nullified, the people wouldn't get as a big a high, there wouldn't be as much addiction, and there surely wouldn't be as much death. And she said, well, you know, we've heard that before, and we're looking into doing that. Well, I hate to say it, I don't think they were sincere in that. Uh, it, it took them uh, all the way from 2002 to 2010 before they made an effort to make it less abusable. And even then, they still didn't use, use or add naloxone to it. And I firmly believe it's because adding naloxone to it would have done what happened to Tarwin NX, uh, which means their sales would have went down. They were more interested in sales than saving lives.
0: Alexa Dietrich, respond to what we just heard. And, you know, when we think about corporate governance practices that should have been in place, should have been in place for, for Dan and apparently others when they wanted to work towards changing this corporate culture at Purdue.
1: Yeah, well, you know, there's um, there are a lot of layers to this question of how we, how we as a society regulate corporations and particularly in the pharmaceutical case. And so there are legal questions and there are also social questions. And one of the things I think that we don't pay enough attention to are the different um, types of social influence and how they how that's wielded. So um, as was mentioned in the clip, you know, there's this question about um, pharmaceutical companies should be saving lives, right? That's what they say they do. Um, and they get a lot of credit and a lot of leeway uh, because they're not considered a harm industry like other kinds of industries. Um, they're considered to be an industry that does good. And so not only do um, political entities that may be regulating them um, or, or legal entities that have choices about whether or not they prosecute them, um, take that into account. But also we in society um, are a little bit hesitant to um, push down too hard on them because we look at them as, as um, entities that produce life-saving drugs. And so I think that that's something we don't talk about enough. Um, And there are a lot of different kinds of this um, influence, both at elite levels and also at, at lower levels. And sometimes it's influence that's literally cash in hand um, in some ways, uh, whether through lobbying or other kinds of uh, benefits given to doctors who prescribe. um, But also, um, you know, there are other kinds of ways in which um, the public relations aspects of their operations um, do a really good job of of convincing us that they're necessary and that they need to be allowed to do whatever it is they need to do.
0: When we think about corporate giving, would separating uh, pharma corporations from foundations help prevent this conflict of interest, Alexa?
1: It's so a really interesting question. And in the Purdue case specifically, uh, something I think that we'll all have to wait and see what happens is that part of the settlement, which has been being talked about um, throughout the show, part of that settlement actually specifically targeted their, phil- their philanthropy. So the settlement uh, stipulated that the Sackler family would lose control of their foundations and also put limitations on the abilities of the family to put its name um, on certain things like buildings and hospitals, even in their private donations. So it remains to be seen if the um, if the settlement comes undone, whether or not that component will also have sort of a second life um, in whatever whatever comes afterwards. But so I think that there was a recognition in that settlement of this need to kind of um, separate uh, this type of philanthropy um, and the the name recognition piece uh, from from companies, including pharmaceutical companies. And it's important to mention that. Pharmaceutical companies in general, the Sacklers are a special case with Purdue, but in general, um, the foundations, what they call foundations and their philanthropies are not really separate entities, they're really just part of the um, The PR arm of these companies, which is different than a lot of foundations that we think about, for example, the Ford Foundation is not related to the Ford Motor Company anymore. Um, So pharmaceutical companies are are a bit of an interesting case in that way that that those things are, are intimately related. And so their donations explicitly focus on areas of interest to their companies, as well as things that are explicitly dedicated to shoring up their reputation. So if there were ways to separate them out and make their governance separate, their decision-making power separate, and in an ideal case, their names or other kinds of associations separate, uh, I do think it would be helpful. <laughs>
0: Uh, There's a a question from a a caller. Before we get to that, Tony, stay with us. Uh, Steve Wood is still here, acute care nurse practitioner, a visiting researcher at Harvard Law School. Steve, related to this uh, conversation with Alexa, I understand you were part of a campaign to get Harvard University to return donations from the Sackler family. uh, Where we live, contact representatives from schools in our state, Yale and University of Connecticut, both of which receive funding from Purdue Pharma. We received an email from UConn that wrote, in part, no new funding has been received from the Sacklers. The only current use of funds gifted by the Sacklers in the past is currently being used to keep an employee employed. And for some research to continue to its conclusion, we didn't hear back from Yale. How do you respond uh, to that, um, that statement from UConn and other schools uh, when we think about the way the money has been used?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, my, my involvement was minimal. It was really, you know, student student. Um, oriented uh, it was the students at Harvard who really you know put that effort forward uh, but I certainly um, helped write some letters and and participated in this because I think that we do have to be careful about you know uh, we, we we're looking you know at how providers are utilizing this money and accepting you know money and trips and things of that nature for these prescribing purposes um, but you know when we think about institutions and the amount of funding that they've received, um, you know I think there needs to be, a bit, I think this is a good, um, you know, uh, start to provide more transparency to this process. Um, it, I find it a little hard to believe that these universities, um, you know, didn't, didn't put more thought into these processes. Uh, but when you're talking about millions of dollars, it's pretty tempting, you know, to accept those funds, um, you know, for research purposes, for buildings, for other things. I think that, yeah, the money's been spent. I don't think that, you know, there's any going back. Um, I think that that the funding's been spent. I think, you know, what we have to do is let what's been done dry up. And I do feel, you know, I, I read the same article about, you know, this uh, research person at uh, UConn, and and this is supporting their salary. Uh, but, you know, there needs to be a way then to figure out how do we do that without, you know, this funding. And, and is there if this is really important research, maybe that funding needs to be, you know, moved from one um, pot to another uh, if, if, you know, we want to support that. So I think you know what we need to see is is further transparency. Um, I, you know I don't think we can go backwards. I, I don't necessarily think you can you know can ask these you know universities to refund that money to dismantle anything. Um, but it, it is a it is a um, you know something for us to think about in the future. And when you know universities are accepting these funds, uh, we really need to think about where is it coming from and is it coming from a source that we feel comfortable with and being transparent about that.
0: You know, Tony is uh, waiting to ask a call. We're getting short on time. So, Tony, I'm going to paraphrase uh, your question uh, that uh, you asked uh, related to the harmful impact of, of methadone, uh, has, have had loved ones uh, that have been uh, taking methadone. What can you say there uh, to, to answer her question about the the impact of methadone, Steve?
4: Well, I mean, yeah, there's going to be harm with any any medication, right? We see harm. With uh, you know all of the medications we used, even antihypertensive medications treating blood pressure, we see harm with drugs to treat cholesterol. We see harm with drugs to treat diabetes. It's all in the context of how these meds are used. Now, certainly, you know people aren't benefiting, you know, from those drugs from a psychological standpoint, like we do with opioids. They're not, you know, getting um, that euphoria from taking you know their antihypertensive medications. Um, so my my answer to that would be. Yeah, certainly any drug can be harmful and methadone can be as well, Um, but we know that it's safer than the alternatives and those alternatives are fentanyl uh, and heroin, right? We know those drugs have uh, far reaching harm that not only are the um, possibility of overdose, but also increasing rates of hepatitis C infection, HIV infection, and other, um, you know, transmittable diseases, even including tuberculosis. So when you think about, you know, um, the the harm benefit, certainly there's much more benefit and safety to using methadone and suboxone than there is to the alternative, which is using illicit drugs like fentanyl and heroin. Um, you know, particularly by the IV route. And so, while you know, I, I feel for that person's family, and I'm you know sorry that there's been some harm. Uh, The benefits that we've seen have far outweighed those potential
2: harms. We'll
0: have to leave it there. Steve Wood, again, is an acute care nurse practitioner, a visiting researcher at the Harvard Law School. Thank you for your time today, Steve. Also with us was Alexa Dietrich Research, associate professor at Wagner College. Alexa, thank you for your time. Thanks very much. I'm Lucy Alpachil. Today's show was produced by Sujata Srinivasan and Abby Levine. Kat Pastor is our technical producer. I'm Lucy Alpachil again. We'll be back tomorrow.